a quick note about today's episode. It features a story of domestic violence and murder. Listener caution is advised. Also, if you or a loved one are suffering from domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. They have highly trained advocates available 24-7 to talk confidentially with anyone experiencing domestic violence, seeking resources, information, or questioning unhealthy aspects of their relationship. The year is 1982. Sylvester Stallone would become John Rambo for the first time, spawning a second iconic character along with Rocky to cement his legacy as an action film star. We would be given a who's who of what Hollywood of the late 80s would become, including Nicolas Cage, Forrest Whitaker, Judge Reinhold, and Sean Penn in the comedy classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We would also see two of the best sci-fi films ever made in the same year, Blade Runner and E.T. That same year, we would also see a horror classic be born in the form of Poltergeist. In the years following the film, the internet would have you believing in the Poltergeist curse. In reality, there were four deaths of performers from the film. Two of them were not unexpected but two, in fact, were lost before their prime. Today, we hear the story of Dominique Dunn and how jealousy, control, and domestic violence is so often overlooked until it's too late. I'm Justin Harvey, and this is Death and Hollywood. Santa Monica, California, on November 23, 1959, the youngest child of Ellen Beatrice, Lenny, a ranching heiress, and Dominic Dunn, a writer, producer, and actor. She had two older brothers, Alex and Griffin Dunn, an actor. She was also the niece of married novelist John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion. Her godparents were Maria Cooper Janice, daughters of the actors Gary Cooper and Veronica Cooper. She was also the goddaughter of producer Martin Manulis. As the saying goes, she was born to be a star. Upon graduation from high school, she spent a year in Florence, Italy. She would learn Italian in her short time there and study acting at the Milton Casales Workshop. She appeared in various stage productions, including West Side Story, The Mousetrap, and My Three Angels. Dunn's first role in Hollywood was in the 1979 film Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. She then got supporting roles in episodes of popular 1980s television series such as Lou Grant, Heart to Heart, and Fame. Dunn also had a reoccurring role on the comedy-drama television series Breaking Away and appeared in several other made-for-TV films. In 1981, 
she was cast in her first feature film, Poltergeist. Dunn portrayed Dana Frayling, the teenage daughter of a couple whose family is terrorized by ghosts. Produced by Steven Spielberg and directed by horror icon Tobe Hooper, the film opened on June 4, 1982 and went on to gross more than $70 million. As her star status in the Hollywood acting scene began to escalate, so did the attention of her being a young and available bachelorette. She would soon attract the eyes of a prominent young chef at a party. This chef is named John Sweeney, and he worked at the Fansom Mom Mansion and Restaurant, and was an up-and-comer in the foodie scene. It wouldn't be long for them to become a couple, a couple in the throes of young love, not unlike the type of love Hollywood so often romanticizes. They moved into a one-bedroom ranch on Rangeley Avenue in West Hollywood together after just a few weeks of dating. But this wasn't a Hollywood love story. It was the beginning of a true crime story, and the female lead just didn't know it yet. They made a striking couple, by all metrics. John was a large man, fit and muscular, an ex-athlete who worked out often. Dominique was petite, at only five foot one. They were thrilled about how much they had in common. They both loved Europe and languages, cooking and animals. But difficulties would soon arise. Differences in temperament and schedules were sharpened by the contrast of their backgrounds. Dominique was born into Hollywood. She had a loving family and was comfortable talking about her feelings. She knew her worth and was comfortable around the famous and the powerful. John, by contrast, grew up in a rural Pennsylvania coal town. His father was an alcoholic who worked out his frustrations by beating his mother, often in full view of the children. His father would later develop epilepsy and divorce his mom. John was very ashamed of his life, and at 20, he would head to California with his culinary arts diploma in hand. At Mom Mansion, he was the sous chef to none other than the famous Wolfgang Puck. I believe John loved his work, but was jealous of the clientele he served nightly and desperately wanted to be a part of that elegant world. Dominique was a perfect entry vehicle for that world, but there was an angst that came along with the elation of dating her, among her rich friends, that feeling of being less than, I'm just a poor boy from rural Pennsylvania, would come surging back to him, fearing every day she would realize he doesn't belong in her world and reject him. Fear became jealousy and possessiveness. John began to control more and more of her life, asserted in the cunning guise of devotion. He would drive her to acting classes and show up on her set when she was working. They seen the same therapist, and he would question her eagerly about what she shared with the doctor, and the very idea of performing in love scenes with male actors would send him to a manic state. Dominique would start to feel the effects of this emotional tyranny, and the more she resisted, the more frightened John would become of rejection. He would flip his fear into anger, and long, bitter arguments would ensue. They would end with John in a rage, 
and Dominique running from the house till he calmed down. According to letters found later, she was very afraid of John during these times, but would forgive him because when they were good, they were great. Her fear soon had reason to be realized. On August 27, 1982, at the height of a quarrel, he grabbed her by her long, thick hair and by one account, yanked her about so violently that handfuls came out by the root. Terrified, she ran out and drove to her mother's house. A little later, John arrived and banged on the doors and windows, demanding to be let in. Miss Dunn told him to go home or she would call the police, and after a while, he left. A few days later, Dominique relented and went back to live with him. Within a month, a more alarming outburst occurred. Shortly after 3 a.m. on September 22nd, John and Dominique started fighting. Suddenly grabbed her by the neck, threw her to the ground, and began to strangle her. Fortunately, a friend who was sleeping in a nearby bedroom heard a series of loud gagging noises. It was the worst sound I had ever heard, he said, and ran to her room. He tried to kill me, Dominique gasped. John denied it and insisted she come back to bed. Pretending to yield, Dominique slipped out the bathroom window. When John heard her car start, he sprinted out of the house and flung himself on the front of the car. She drove off but stopped long enough to let him jump off and then raced away. Large dark bruises lingered for days at the base of her throat. The very next day, she filmed a television episode of Hill Street Blues titled Requiem for a Hairbag. Dunn was playing the part of a teenage mother who is the victim of child abuse. The previous day's incidents had left such bruising the makeup department did not need to add any special effects for the role. For Dominique, that was the end of the affair. Convinced that he was dangerously out of control, she hid out at a friend's house and at her mother's, traveling around town when she knew he was at work. Wild with anxiety, John called dozens of her friends but couldn't find her. Finally, several days later, she called him and persuaded him to move out of their house. When he did, she had the locks changed and moved back in. On October 30th, a few weeks after the breakup, Dunn was at her home rehearsing for the miniseries V with actor David Packer. While she was speaking to a female friend on the phone, John Sweeney had the operator break into the conversation. Dunn told her friend, Oh God, it's Sweeney. Let me get him off the phone. Ten minutes later, Sweeney showed up. After speaking to him through the locked door, Dunn agreed to speak to him on the porch while Packer remained inside. Outside, the two began to argue. Packer later said he heard smacking sounds, two screams, and a thud. He called the police, but was told that Dunn's home was out of their jurisdiction. Packer then phoned a friend and told him if he was found dead, John Sweeney was the killer. Packer left the home through the back entrance, approached the driveway, and saw Sweeney in some nearby bushes kneeling over Dunn. Sweeney told Packer that he called the police. When police arrived, Sweeney met them in the driveway 
with his hands in the air and stated, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. Sweeney later testified that Dunn and he had argued, but he could not remember what happened after their exchange and could only recall being on top of her with his hands around her throat. Dunn was transported to Cedars Sinai, where she was placed on life support because her heart had stopped. She never regained consciousness. Over the following days, doctor performed brain scans that showed she had no brain activity due to oxygen deprivation. On November 4th, 19 days before her 23rd birthday, her parents removed her from life support. At the request of her mother, her kidneys and heart were donated to transplant recipients. Dunn's funeral was held on November 6th at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. Her godfather Martin delivered the eulogy. She was buried in the Westward Village Memorial Park. Her poltergeist co-star, Heather O'Rourke, was later buried there in 1988. Dominique's mother, Ellen, founded the Justice for Homicide Victims, a victim's rights group, a year after her daughter's death. Normally, this is where our episode would come to a close, but anyone familiar with this case knows I can't stop it here. You can't discuss this case without looking at the aftermath, and if you're like me, you're looking at the aftermath in disgust. Sweeney's trial began in August 1983 and was preceded over by Judge Katz. During the trial, Sweeney took the stand in his own defense. He testified that he had not intended to harm Dunn that night. He claimed they had reconciled, were planning on moving back in together, and had daily discussions about getting married and having children. On the night of October 30th, Sweeney said that Dunn had abruptly changed her mind and there was not going to be a reconciliation. She told them she had been lying to him about getting back together and had been leading him on. At that point, Sweeney said he just exploded and lunged towards her. Sweeney claimed to have no recollection of attacking Dunn until he discovered he was on top of her with his bare hands on her neck. He then realized she was not breathing. Sweeney said he attempted to revive her by making her walk around, but she fell down. He then attempted to give her CPR, which caused Dunn to vomit. Sweeney said that he also vomited, ran into the house, and consumed two bottles of pills in an attempt to kill himself. He then returned to the driveway where Dunn was and lay down beside her. He said he then reached into her mouth and pulled her tongue out of her throat something he had done for his epileptic father in the past. Sweeney's court-appointed attorney, Michael Adelson, said that his client's actions were not premeditated or done with malice. He maintained that Sweeney acted out in the heat of the moment, provoked by Dunn's alleged deception. Dunn's family disputed Sweeney's claim that she had reconciled with him. They insisted that he went to her home on October 30th to persuade her to change her mind because she had told them their breakup was permanent. The prosecution and police also dismissed Sweeney's version of events, as there was no physical evidence that he had consumed pills at the time of his arrest. Upon their arrival, 
Police said they found him to be calm and collected. Deputy Frank D'Amelio, the first officer to arrive on scene, testified that Sweeney told him, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I lost my temper and blew it again. The medical examiner, who performed Dunn's autopsy, determined that she had been strangled for at least three minutes. Police and prosecutors dismissed the heat of passion defense as they believed that given the time taken to strangle Dunn, that Sweeney had an ample amount of time to regain control of his actions which might have saved Dunn's life. To establish a history of Sweeney's violent behavior, the prosecution called one of Sweeney's ex-girlfriends, Lillian Pierce. Pierce, who did not testify in the jury's presence at the request of Sweeney's attorney, stated that she and Sweeney had dated off and on from 1977 to 1980. Pierce claimed that during their relationship, Sweeney had assaulted her on at least 10 occasions and she had to be hospitalized twice for injuries he inflicted on her. During one such assault, Pierce sustained a perforated eardrum and a collapsed lung. She later suffered a broken nose. During Pierce's testimony, Sweeney became enraged, jumped up from his seat, and ran towards the door leading to the judge's chamber. He was subdued by two bailiffs and four armed guards. Sweeney was then handcuffed to his chair and began to cry. He apologized for the outburst, and Judge Katz accepted the apology. Attorney Michael Edison requested that Judge Cat rule Pierce's testimony as inadmissible as it was prejudicial. For some reason, Judge Katz granted the request, and the jury never learned of Pierce's testimony until after the trial. Katz also refused to allow testimony from Dunn's mother, as well as Dunn's friends, ruling their statements about Sweeney's abusive nature as hearsay. The only history of abuse encountered testimony to the so-called reconciliation that was allowed to be established in the trial was a letter from Dunn to John. This is her words to him. Selfishness works both ways. You are just as selfish as I am. We have to be two individuals to work as a couple. I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be a part? of everything I do. Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? Why must I talk about every audition when you know it is bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you've made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when the images in your head of me fade away and you are faced with the real me 
and that's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you. And I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have a mood swing. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. On August 29th, defense attorney Michael Adison also requested that Judge Katz rule that evidence was insufficient to try Sweeney on the charge of first-degree murder because there was no evidence of predetermination or deliberation. Judge Katz granted the request and instructed jurors that they were only allowed to consider charges of manslaughter or second-degree murder. Deputy District Attorney Steve Barshup later said this decision along with Judge Katz's previous rulings barring the testimony of Sweeney's ex-girlfriend and Dunn's mother and friends, were serious blows to the prosecution's case against Sweeney. On September 21, 1983, after eight days of deliberation, the jury acquitted John Sweeney of second-degree murder, but found him guilty of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. He was also convicted of misdemeanor assault, for the altercation with Dunn that occurred on September 26th. Dunn's family was outraged by the verdict, calling it an injustice. After Judge Katz excused the jury and told them justice was served, Dominic Dunn yelled, Not for our family, Judge Katz, before leaving the courtroom. Dominic Dunn accused Judge Katz of purposely withholding Sweeney's ex-girlfriend's testimony from the jury which would have helped to establish his violent history with women. Victim for Victims, a victim's rights group established by actress Teresa Saldana, protested the verdict by staging a march outside the courthouse. After several media outlets debated the events of the trial and the verdict, several also criticized Judge Katz's actions. One local Los Angeles television station polled its viewers who rated Judge Katz the fourth worst judge in Los Angeles County. On November 7th, Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison for manslaughter. This was the maximum sentence he could receive, plus six additional months for the assault charge. At Sweeney's sentencing, Judge Katz criticized the jury's ruling of manslaughter, stating that he felt Dunn's death was a case of pure and simple murder, murder with malice. The jury's foreman, Paul Spiegel, later told the media that his fellow jurors and him were surprised by Judge Katz's criticism and called his comment a cheap shot. Spiegel felt that Judge Katz's criticism stemmed not from their verdict, but from the harsh criticism he received after the verdict was given. Spiegel went on to say that had the jury heard all the evidence, they would have convicted Sweeney of murder. After the trial, John Sweeney was incarcerated at a medium-security prison in Susanville, California. He was released on parole in September 1986 after serving only three years and seven months. Three months after his release, Sweeney was hired as the head chef at the Chronicle, an upscale restaurant in Santa Monica. Dunn's brother Griffin and her mother Lenny found out where Sweeney was working, and began handing out flyers to patrons that read, 
The food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. Sweeney eventually quit his job due to the protests from Dunn's family and moved away from Los Angeles. In the mid-1990s, Dominic Dunn was contacted by a Florida doctor who had read an article Dunn wrote about Dominic's death. The doctor told Dunn his daughter had recently became engaged to a chef named John Sweeney and wondered if it was the same John Sweeney involved in Dominic's death. The man did turn out to be the same John Sweeney. Dominique's brother Griffin later called the doctor's daughter and tried to convince her to call it off. Sweeney accused the Duns of harassing him and later changed his name. In interviews, Dominic Dunn said that for a time, he employed the services of private investigator Anthony Pelicano to follow and report on Sweeney's whereabouts and actions. According to Dunn's father, Pelicano reported that Sweeney had moved to the Pacific Northwest and had changed his name to John Mora. Dunn's father said that he later decided that he no longer wished to squander his life following Sweeney and therefore discontinued any attempts to keep tabs on him. Dominique Dunn was a young starlet destined for a long career with a family that would have supported her throughout. She was loved and continued to be loved well after her death by those close to her. Her killer's treatment by the justice system left a bitter taste for so many. Dominique, rest in peace. You will never be forgotten. If you like this story, please hit subscribe and leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. If you really like this story and want to help us grow, please share it with just one friend. You can join the conversation by following us on social media. If you'd like to support us financially, you can head over to anger.fm, search Death in Hollywood, and become a subscriber. With your monthly membership, you'll be listed as a producer in the credits of the next show.